0: If you would turn over to Job, Job chapter one, and today we'll this will serve somewhat as an introduction to the book of Job as we begin to work our way through the book of Job, but also we will look at the first five verses or the, the prologue of Job um, as we introduce the book. So Job one one through five. Let's pray once again, ask God's blessing on the preaching and reading of his word. Creator God, when you speak, uh, things happen. You said, let there be light, and there was light. You said, let light shine out of darkness and have shown the light of the knowledge of your glory in Christ into our hearts. You are uh, your, your sanctifying truth is your word. By the power of your word, may we become more and more men and women who fear you, who walk blamelessly and upright, shunning evil and inclined toward everything good. May your word and the application of it to our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit make these things so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand once more for the reading of God's word. Job 1, 1 through 1-5 There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, The book of Job is a bit of an enigma. We were talking about that word this morning. It's a bit confounding. Uh, It's also widely considered to be one of the greatest literary works of all time, both in the church and just broadly. Um, And it has engendered a wide range of of thoughts and uh, interpretations and applications. Um, And the book of Job causes us to ask questions. And perhaps really the book... Scares up more snakes than it puts down in that regard. Uh, it, it causes us to ponder questions about suffering and about theodicy, the the idea that uh, we ju- justifying God in the in the in light of the presence of evil. And ask, we ask these questions, and, and these are questions that are not really fully answered by the Book of Job. However, it does uh, scare up one snake, the great snake Leviathan, and Put him down. Uh, Job is in the wisdom genre of Scripture. Uh, Proverbs is the the, the wisdom book that we're familiar with. It sets out the principles by which we live godly and prosperous lives. And Job is, to me, the book that asks Proverbs, okay, but what about? It's a book that, in a sense, brings wisdom from the the petri dish of the lab, and brings it to bear on the decay and the sin and perplexity of life in a fallen world. Uh, Job is about two personages, Job and God. There are other players, of course, Job's wife, Job's uh, friends, uh, the the narrator, but Job and God are the primary players here, and and as well as uh, Satan, we might add in there. But we will see that, that amid uh, all of the suffering that Job faces in this book, um, that, that his lingering lament throughout, his highest concern is the apparent breach of fellowship between him and God. That's the thing that bothers him the most. Now if you aren't already familiar, the, the book of Job in broad strokes, Job is a righteous man blessed by God. Uh, and one that God allows to undergo great suffering and trial at the hands of Satan, the accuser. And Satan takes all of Job's blessings from him, including the death of these ten children we read about in this passage. He afflicts them with, or him, with with horrific sores on his skin. And perhaps worse, he afflicts him with friends who think they're advisors, um, and really end up being servants of Satan and Servants of accusation against Job. The bulk of the book of Job is this dialogue between Job and his uh, friends in the form of Hebrew uh, poetry. The the front half and the last half are are, are portions, a little bit, is uh, prose, but most of the book is Hebrew uh, poetry. Um, Job must wrestle with how God would afflict him in his righteousness. And in the end of the book, God comes to Job in a whirlwind, offering several speeches that do not satisfy all of his questions, but make it clear God's ways are above man's ways. And he is far greater, far more powerful than the evil and chaos that are confronting mankind. And Job is, is satisfied by God's response to him and in, in the end God vindicates Job and restores his blessedness so why would we study uh, this book of Job uh, first off it's just immensely practical we need wisdom in this fallen world uh, of evil and sin and suffering and chaos uh, second it directs us chiefly to the fear and the fellowship of the Lord uh, as the beginning of wisdom As we kind of discussed last week, providentially, um, if we occupy ourselves with questions too high for us uh, that are beyond our grasp, our our souls will be disquieted. But as we learn to rest and to hope in the Lord, we may proceed with that faith, the faith of a small child running into his mother's arms. And that's what this book calls us to do. Uh, Thirdly, it points us to Christ in, in really a multitude of ways. Uh, through whom, through Christ, we are uh, brought into the life-giving fellowship of God. Um, so in short, we would study it because Job is scripture and it's a means of grace to us. And oftentimes um, Job is studied the beginning and the end with a quick overview of the middle and we want to, to get the fullness of the means of grace that Job has to offer to us. So this morning I have just two goals. I want to introduce the book um, of Job, and I want to cover this prologue, the first five verses. Um, and really, these five verses set up the whole rest of the book. They're extremely important. So let's just spend a little time looking at the trees of the prologue, and then we'll end by zooming back out, seeing how the prologue sets up the rest of the book. So initially, let's look at the prologue, which I've... Uh, in uh, Put under the heading, Godly Integrity Established. Godly Integrity Established. Uh, the book of Job opens very simply. Uh, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. It's very different from the Haggai, which we just saw. that it was on this state, in this place, during the reign of Darius the king. It's very broad. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Um, Job is not an Israelite. He's not a member of Abraham's covenant family. Uh, Uz was most likely to the east of Israel in what we would call Edom. He was possibly an Edomite or from from northern Arabia. Um, Lamentations 4.21 associates Uz with Edom. It says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. So it's quite possible he's from that region of Edom. Um, It's worth just pointing out that because he's not an Israelite, God did have dealings with people outside of of the covenant nation of Israel, the the offspring of Abraham. So it would seem to me that the questions raised by this book are more broadly human questions. Uh, They wrestle with man's relationship with God in a broad sense, and and perhaps I think that's why the book has had such broad appeal as a, a, a piece of literature. Uh, it's believed that Job may have lived roughly contemporary with the patriarchs. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere during that time. And you'll notice as we go through that the narrator uses the name Yahweh, or in our Old Testaments, capital L-O-R-D. Um, but Job and his friends don't, except for one time, which is questionable usage in that, in that time. Um, in other words, the setting of this book is pre-Moses. While the writing of this book is post Moses, um, and, and conservative scholars would put it anywhere between 1500 BC, around the time of Moses, to up until the post-exilic time, around 500 BC. So we see from this um, prologue that Job, Job is a man who is extremely blessed and very, very wealthy. In verse two, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So seven and three are kind of numbers of, of perfection, and this is Job's lot. The perfection we have both in, in his children and in his livestock. Seven and three, thousand, three 3,000. Um, And this just reflects the fullness of the divine blessing that rests upon Job. The narrator describes him as the greatest of all the people of the East. I always thought of Job as this sort of wealthy nomad, kind of like Abraham, going around. But that's not the case at all. Um, In verses 4 and 5, we see that his children lived in houses. They each had their own house. Um, And later in the book, we discover that Job is actually a man who's active in the gate of his city, People know him. They looked up to him. He was involved in a city or community there. Um, Job 29, 21 through 25, he says, he, he laments about this being lost for him now. He says, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived as a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. So He was a man of respect, the greatest man in the east, this region where he lived. Um, Of even greater blessing than those things, uh, numbers of children, wealth, status, uh, Job's family seemed to be quite happy and quite unified. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, which possibly just means his birthday, or maybe they just took turns having feasts. Um, And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So there's harmony, there's flourishing in Job's household, even with adult children. They, They love one another, they feast together. This is yet another sign of divine favor. As we just saw this morning in the call to worship from Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is something I think we would all trade 7,000 camels to have our family dwell in unity. Uh, The narrator of the prologue wants us to see the abundance and blessing and favor that Job possessed. And, And he also indicates why he received it. Why Job had this blessing? Um, the, the connection is a bit more clear in the, the original language, but it seems pretty clear that Job's blessings flow out of his character or his faithfulness to God, that they are some in some way a fruit of his uh, character. The narrator offers four descriptions of his character in verse 1. Uh, that man was blameless, upright, one who feared God, And turned away from evil. Uh, Blameless is a word that we would think means perfect, but more likely it just means consistent. Job himself admits to being a sinner. In Job 31, he says he would be false to God if he had concealed his transgressions, so if he didn't confess his sins as others by hiding my iniquity in my heart. That's what he says. So he recognizes he's a sinner. He's not perfect, but he's consistent. The point is that he's not two-faced. He's not hypocritical. Um, like Daniel or Jesus, if somebody were to try to find some dirt on him, they wouldn't find anything. Uh, Christopher Ashe says with Job, you see what you get. That's what this idea of blamelessness is. Or you get what you see, rather. Uh, second, he is upright, which is, gen- means generally that he's trustworthy, he's honest, um, he's principled. Oh. One lexicon says that the, the word itself means straight or stretched or level, um, smooth. It's an honest, principled person. Third, he fears God. And to me, again, this is striking because he's not an Israelite. And he fears God, the, the God, the one true God of the universe. I, I don't know how he knew about God, how God revealed himself to us, but he's a man who lived in fear of God, Um He had a reverential awe and respect for God that induced a spirit of humility and obedience and love um, toward him. Not not out of a sense of judgment, but out of a filial fear, a a loving fear toward his heavenly Father and provider. Fourth, he turned away from evil. This is the idea of repentance, of turning away. Or even more, it seems that he shunned the paganism that was around him. He was not seduced by the worldly um, immorality that was around him. Rather, he walked in humble obedience and reliance on God. So it's essential in understanding Job to, to understand going forward that he was a good man. Blameless in the sense that I just mentioned. A man of integrity. But Even more important is the affirmation of his godliness. That he lived his life, quorum Deo, before the face of God, with respect to God, in the fear of the Lord. Uh, And we're given an example of this. in Verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. <clears throat> it seems like it's saying he would do this every time they had one of these feasts. Uh, notably, it's a multi-day feast. So they had plenty of resources again. Uh, and, and seven times or perhaps ten times if, the, if the, his daughters also had, had feasts. Um, but there's no hint here, I, I don't think, that the children during these, these feasts and parties descended into a kind of wickedness or debauchery. Um, In in fact, I think the opposite is true, because the narrator seems to suggest that the feasting is actually a fruit of Job's integrity. But Job is is aware of the sinfulness of the human heart. And so he takes the care to exercise spiritual oversight over his family, over his adult children. So first he would would call them to himself, he would consecrate the child, um, and that is... Prior to making the sacrifice, he would in some way set them apart or cleanse them uh, unto God. And then he would offer a sacrifice on their behalf, on the behalf, it seems, of each child. And now it's important to point out that this is all prior to the introduction of the Levitical system that we're familiar with with Moses. But we see in the Bible, sacrifice goes all the way back. Cain and Abel are sacrificing um, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and really in a pattern set by the Lord himself who sacrificed an animal in order to, to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Um, so propitiatory animal sacrifice was not new. It was not something that needed to rest on the Mosaic Covenant. Now, it's it's not that Job was some kind of a, a nervous Nelly, like I just gotta like the the i in, in Acts seventeen, or have a god god unto the unknown god, just in case. That that's not his attitude. It's, um he he's really that he's taking responsibility for the holiness of his children. Uh, David Kleins says that it w- it would be poss- not it would not be the possibility of an inadvertent sin that troubles Job. But the possibility of a secret sin. It's not something they did by accident, but something they did in their hearts. And really, the worst of all possible sins is what he's concerned about. He's not sacrificing for possible gluttony and getting tipsy at the feast, right? He's, he, he's sacrificing on the possibility that they have harbored secret, a curse toward God in their hearts. And this, this prologue, is an account of Job's righteousness. It's more about him than the children. He's taking responsibility for the spiritual well-being of his children in in a way that seems to have cultivated unity in his household. He makes a point of tying celebration and the enjoyment of the blessings they had received to a holy fear and worship of the Lord. The two things are not separate. They go together and also he does, he does not allow the enjoyment of these blessings and abundance um, to be divorced from a reminder of the possibility or the seriousness of sin which easily creeps in especially in, in times and seasons of, of wealth it's fascinating um, that Job who is so invested in guarding his children against cursing the Lord in their hearts that in only just a little bit, as we get into Job, he's confronted with the temptation from the lips of his own wife, and really this is a drumbeat throughout the rest of the book, curse God and die. That's the very temptation that Satan is putting before him throughout this book. So, in this prologue, Job um, and his godly integrity is established. He is a good man. He's a man who lives his life before the face of God. And, and we have to keep this fact before us as we go through the rest of the book. It becomes incredibly important, and I'll, I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, this prologue, then, it sets the stage for the rest of the book. And in some ways, it's a, a kind of a setup for the perplexities that we encounter in this book. And that's really the second heading this morning, is a setup for perplexity. Many of the the themes in Job are sort of polar perplexities. They come in pairs. Um, for example, um, sovereign order and apparent chaos. How do we recon- re- reconcile those two things? Sovereign order and apparent chaos. Um, and... Something we'll be talking about quite a bit as we go through Job is something we would, might call the retribution principle. Um, and this is a good time to, to talk about it because it will come up a lot in the book. So the retribution principle um, we see in the prologue itself that is kind of what you get in, what, what you get out is what you put in. With respect to morality and blessing, if you, if you put in honor and obedience toward the Lord, you get out blessings. If you put in curses and disobedience to the Lord, you get cursing and tribulation in return. And Job's blessings are a reflection of his faithfulness to God. And in, the, in a general sense, that this retribution principle is true in a broad sense. Broadly speaking, God designed His universe in this way. The way I often put it is simply God's ways work. As a general, broad principle, if you follow him and follow his ways, you will find a richness of blessing in your life. This principle is put down in covenant law in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's applied more widely in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 11:17 through 19 is a good example. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. So that's just broadly the general principle of retribution. You get what you put in and, and, and you, uh, yeah, you get what you put in. However, the the oversimplification and the misapplication of this principle is what gets Job's friends into trouble. What makes their advice bad advice. Uh, I've been thinking of their error, hopefully this illustration makes sense, (laughs) similar to Newton's first law of motion, that an object in motion stays in motion. And we think, well, that's not true to my experience. I throw a baseball and it's going to hit the ground and it's going to stop. However, that's because of the gravitational force dragging it to the ground and the friction of the air um, through which it's passing. However, if we were to go to space, the vacuum of space, and throw the same ball, it would continue on forever until it theoretically maybe hit some other body in space. But the, the rest of Newton's law that's less catchy, maybe less well-known, an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. In other words, I I see Job's friends seeing the retribution principle as simply a theoretical principle, sort of applied in the vacuum of space, as it were. Bildad is especially bad about this. Um, He's utterly convinced that Job's suffering is the direct result of some sin that he committed or his children committed. And this is really simplistic and purely theoretical in the way he reconciles the difficulty between sovereign order and apparent chaos. So hear what Bildad says to Job, and this is supposed to comfort him, I guess, in Job 8, 2-6. through 6. How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth, be a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely, then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. In other words, your, sin, your kids are dead because of some sin they committed. Or you're in this position because of some sin. And if you just repent, God would restore you. It's purely mechanistic, purely theoretical. Confronted with reality, with the forces of gravity and friction that exist in the real world, Bildad's theories fall apart. And we know this is true because we know from the narrator, from God's own testimony, that Bildad is wrong, (laughs) that Job is a righteous man. And yet, he, he is enduring some kind of suffering. And that in a me- mechanistic worldview that, that fails to properly account for the fallenness of the created order, it can only make sense if Job is sinned in some grievous way. Oh, <laughs> uh, a second uh, perplexity then. So we, we see this sort of trying to figure out sovereign order and um, apparent chaos. The second one is divine fellowship. And ostracization, that's a hard word to say, ostracization. Um, In the prologue, Job is presented as a man who's zealous for and enjoys communion with God. Um, And there is a reciprocation there. God enjoys Job as well. He says, God says to Satan a little bit later, have you considered my servant Job? God is approving of what Job has been doing. And then in the course of the suffering that Job is about to endure, it is as though to him that God has turned his face away from him. That blessing turns into what feels like cursing and he feels as though God is nowhere to be found. Um, So Job 23, uh, Job recognizes this. He says in 8 and 9, Behold, I go forward and he is not there and backward, but I do not perceive him on the left hand when he is working. I do not behold him He turns to the right, but I do not see him. Where is God? I have this fellowship with God. Where has he gone? How is it that God's face has turned away unless it's for some grave sin? That's the question. And so likewise with Job, we're challenged to ask, um, why can it seem sometimes that God has turned his face away from us? That his presence is not as palpable and for no apparent reason. And we'll see, for, again, for all the grief that Job endures, this, this, this issue seems to bother him the most. Why, where is God? What, what happened to my fellowship with God? And we, we have to remember this in Job, we're given this unique window into his world that we don't even have for ourselves. We know the reason behind Job's suffering, but he never does. He never learns throughout the whole of this book why this happened to him. So we tend to ask ourselves, because we don't have that same window into our own lives, did I falter in some way that I'm not aware of? Am I really walking in the fear of the Lord? We begin to have these doubts. Why has this happened to me? It just doesn't make sense. Where is God in all of this? And the book of Job does not really give us all the answers we seek to those questions. But it does remind us in the midst of perplexities that simplistic, mechanistic worldviews are insufficient in equipping us to grapple with these realities. Instead, we're moved again like small children running into the arms of his mother to to seek God all the more in those moments where it seems like God has turned his face away. Um, this is what Job does. He pursues God throughout the book. Uh, Eric Ortland says that we need a category of suffering in which all that is gained from suffering is that God gives himself to us more deeply. That's a great way to summarize the book of Job. We need a category of suffering in which all that is gained from suffering is that God gives himself to us more deeply. So that's just a uh, two of these polar perplexities. You could have a whole whole list of them, but I hope that gives you the idea of how the prologue sets us up for perplexity. This man, this righteous man, this man of God is about to endure great suffering. Now before we close, I want to offer a few implications or exhortations kind of from these ideas and from the prologue. <clears throat> the first exhortation is... Just remember Job's integrity. Remember Job's integrity. And I mean this in two ways. First, interpretively, and second, personally. Um, So interpretively, as we begin to get into the book of Job and wade into these speeches um, in the poetic language of the book, things can get a little bit fuzzy and confusing. And we can lose sight of this fact. But the prologue serves as an anchor point of clarity that Job is a man of godly integrity. This is established for us right out front as kind of a lighthouse in the storm that we're about to go through in the rest of the book and helps us keep our our bearings. Uh, Second, remember Job's integrity personally. As human human beings will inevitably wrestle with these perplexities and many other uh, perplexities that we encounter in Job and we will... Encounter things that we have difficulty reconciling, things that feel like us, to, feel to us like like divine obscurity or coldness. And it can help to remember that well, the the retribution principle has general, broad application, and it's worth considering. Perhaps there is some set of divine principles or wisdom that we're failing to implement that would make our life really more fruitful and more joyous. But it is a grave mistake to fall into the purely theoretical, mechanical, and vacuous assumptions that Job's friends make about this principle. Trials do not necessarily mean that God is out to get you for some sin. Or or that somehow, for some reason, something you did, God hates you. If you are his child, they may be a, a loving form of discipline upon you. But Job was a man of godly integrity and still he endured great suffering and perplexity on a scale really I think none of us can imagine. And God had a wonderful design in it. So it's helpful to remember Job's integrity. Second exhortation, uh, emulate Job's integrity. Emulate Job's integrity. Uh, if you know me, you know I'm not a believer in turning biblical personalities into moral examples. Um, however, this prologue explicitly approves, through the narrator and, in a little bit, through God's own voice, the way Job lived his life. Now, moreover, Scripture explicitly calls us to look to Job as an example. Um, in James 5, 10-11, <clears throat> as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. Interesting, he calls Job a prophet uh, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who bless Those blessed who remain steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we remember Job's integrity. We also emulate his integrity remembering the mercy of the Lord, James says. So we do, we want to live lives that are pleasing before the Lord, like we see in Job's prologue. We need to be people striving for uprightness, blameless, not two-faced, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. If we're drawn to worldliness, we need to shun that impulse. We need to live lives coram Deo, in the fear of the Lord, before the face of the Lord. We need to lay aside our double-mindedness so that we are these kind of what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of people. This is worth emulating in Job And we should be the kind of people, as he was, to take responsibility for our own holiness, but not only for our own holiness, a kind of holiness that that garners the respect of the community, but even takes the responsibility of holiness for those who are under our charge, for our our children, our households. Because at the end of the day, as as people who are responsible for other people, their, their failures are our failures. Their successes are our successes. So we should lead them to the fear of the Lord, guiding them into the holy fellowship uh, with the one who provides every blessing. So it's worth emulating Job's integrity. Finally, uh, simply the exhortation is is look toward Christ. Look toward Christ. Um, the, The cleansing and consecration that Job led his children through in this passage, the bloody propitiatory sacrifice offered on their behalf, all of that is worthless and pointless if the real sacrifice never came. The actual atoning sacrifice, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices did not take away the sins of Job's children. Christ's sacrifice did. The bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed the saints forward in faith to the once-for-all bloody sacrifice of Christ that cleanses us and satisfied the wrath of God. Uh, Calvin says here that if we would come to God such as we are, we deserve to be rejected and considered as stinking carcasses by him. Consequently, we have to purify ourselves. And how do we do it? The ancient fathers had definite ceremonies such as were needed before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we know we must take refuge in the precious blood of the Son of God, which was shed for our cleansing. We must call upon the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ if we wish to be received as clean before God. In other words, really, 1 John 1 and 2. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's interesting that John calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous. and James calls Job a a prophet. In some sense, it seems to me that Job prefigured Christ as the ultimate man of godly integrity who endured really the most perplexing suffering Jesus did, Uh, who, who Jesus cried out in the anguish of body and soul, wondering why the face of God had turned away from him. And at the moment in time, when perhaps of all times, when sovereign order appeared to be most given over to the chaos of evil, when God is pinned to the cross and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The things that are made known to us in the Scriptures, revealed to us in God's Word, are such a comfort to sinners and sufferers. We know that even as Satan afflicted Job, God was writing this beautiful story in which he was foreshadowing the ultimate piercing of Leviathan. And that it was leading toward on the darkest day on the cross when the heel of Christ was bruised as it crushed the head of that great and evil chaos monster, the serpent. Praise God. Amen.